0: It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro.
1: Hey, thank you, Chuck, and welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro here with you once again. Behind the scenes, as always, J.R. Quitman, our creator, producer, and director. Our thanks for everybody who has watched, who has subscribed, who has listened to an episode as we just celebrated our one-year anniversary. We did that with episode 42 featuring future Pro Football Hall of Famer Dwight Freeney, And again, thank you all for making this possible. And now, as we get set for year number two, we have episode 43. And for that, we go to a Pro Football Hall of Famer. Currently, it is Larry Zonka. Larry Zonka, great running back at Syracuse, alongside Floyd Little and Tom Coughlin in the backfield for the Orangemen, drafted by the Dolphins and on that 1972 undefeated team playing for Don Shula. He tells us stories about the coaches, his Hall of Fame players, also great stories of befriending Elvis Presley. Yes, Elvis and Larry Zonka friends. We hear that story as well. All that is part of his new memoir, Head On, a memoir out soon from Larry Zonka. Once again, our guest, episode number 43, is the Pro Football Hall of Famer, Larry Zonka. Well, Larry, first of all, uh, thanks so much for spending some time with us here today. And I know, uh, you know, part of it, you're, you're kind of on your book tour, right? Uh, head on a memoir, which comes out October 4th. Um, you happy that it's, it's out now and, and the, the first chance you got a chance to see it, what was uh, your reaction to seeing it?
0: Um, it was a long time coming. Uh, Jim Kick and I were running mates back with the Dolphins in the seventies and we, uh, we did a book together about the 72 season while it was going on. Talk about hitting the, the nail on the head when the undefeated season, we, we actually went game to game and it was called always on the run. So I had some experience about that, but Dave Anderson was a local sports writer or it was a pretty well-known sports writer at the time in the nation. And he, uh, he was our, uh, chief, uh, consultant and writer and, uh, A jack of all trades, and he he kept up with us week to week, and it was a pretty good book. But I, you know, it was kind of a pastime thing. Uh, Talking about a memoir and covering your whole life uh, at 75, Audrey started to to bug me a little bit and say, "Hey, we need to do this." So I finally I said, "Okay, let's do it." But you've got to do the legwork because I'm not going to talk to all these people and talk to all the people about how to write it, where to write it, when to write it. And she handled all the details all the details. And I just literally started speaking to a couple of different people until we finally found someone that, that I thought was right. And then we bounced it back and forth. And I started reiterating the stories and that poor guy, <laughs> several of them had to listen, <laughs> had to listen on in. I, uh, had a, what I thought was a very interesting childhood and, uh, the way I grew up was kind of unique. I grew up in the Midwest out in Ohio and, uh, was the way I was situated in the family. I had uh, three much older siblings and three much young, or two much younger siblings. So uh, Dad right after the war, came back and uh, he was over in the uh, Japanese theater. And when he got back, he qualified for a loan, so he moved out of Akron where my older siblings had grown up and knew about uh, school buses and flush toilets and all those things. We moved out, instead he had grown, my father had grown up in a farm in Western Pennsylvania and he longed to get back to the country. So he went out to Stowe, Ohio and bought a 20 acre dirt farm in between two huge dairy farms, several hundred acres apiece. And I grew up kind of uh, in a remote location in uh, outside of a small town called Stowe and uh, dealt with the animals a lot in nature and, you know, had hundreds of acres on each side of me. I was free to roam the dairy farms at will. And, and, uh, well, it was a great way to grow up. I had 17 dogs when I was a kid, you know, 15 to 17 dogs. So I, I literally was part of the dog pack for a long time.
1: How did that upbringing maybe help you and maybe toughen you for the, for the football player and the person that, that you would become later in life?
0: Well, Frankly, uh, when you're in the woods and you're with critters a lot, you know, the law of the land is the law of the land. Uh, you know, the biggest lion eats first. And it. Uh, I kind of grew up that way. I wasn't around uh, people other than my family until I was probably uh, nine or ten years old. So I was a little bit uh, socially uh, behind. Didn't know how to really react with people. Just... Uh, wasn't socially interactive much with people at all outside of just family. And uh, I think that uh, had a, a kind of a hard effect. I, uh, uh, I'm kind of on my own quite a bit in, uh, but I loved animals and loved being at the farm and loved uh, being out where we were at. But uh, I think it did slow me down a little bit socially when I got to school.
1: When did sports, when did football emerge as something that you would eventually gravitate toward?
0: I went out for football in seventh grade, like most of us do. Of course, now kids have peewee football. It, wasn't, it didn't exist when I was a kid. Um, and didn't know anything about it. And just lined up because I was kind of a big farm kid. They said, hey, we need you on the team. You know, the coach did and put me on there. And I didn't know anything about where to line up or who. I didn't even know how to put the uniform on. They had to show me how to put the pads on. I'm putting the thigh pads in upside down. I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, the other kids were kind of the older kids that I was trying to join their team. I was in seventh grade. I was playing with the eighth grade team and uh, seventh grade team didn't have a team because they couldn't afford it, Uh, but they had the eighth grade. So I went out for that and uh, I went out and held a dummy while the other guys were, you know, I was late in the season when the coach or when the, uh, yeah, the coach had asked me to come out. So they had already gone through their practices and everything and knew what they were doing. And I was literally holding a dummy, just getting knocked down being a, you know, the opposing team that they were going to practice against. And uh, I got tired of it in about two weeks. Hell, I said I can get knocked down by a Holstein at home. I don't need to do this on a football field. So I, uh, I quit. And then in a couple of weeks I got in some trouble. We borrowed some bicycles and didn't return them and uh, left them, you know, we rode back from Akron after going to a theater and uh, picked up some bicycles and rode back to Stowe and just dropped them off in front of the hardware. The guy in the hardware saw us, turned us into the police. Long story short, I was in trouble stealing a bicycle. Actually, I figured I borrowed it. But nevertheless, you take it without permission, that's stealing. So I ended up in front of a uh, juvenile court judge. And that judge referred me, was good friends with a fellow who was our junior high uh, principal at the time, a fellow named Mr. Saldis. And he uh, (laughs) stepped forward with the judge and said that he would uh, decide what would would go with me. And uh, so the judge just referred me to his, whatever he did, whatever Mr. Saldis decided, what I had, that was a sentence I had to serve. And as soon as I met Mr. Saldis, I walked up to him and he said, "Uh, have you uh, heard of football? I said, he's an ex-coach, now refereeing part-time. He's in his 50s. And I said, well, yes, sir, I've heard of it. He said, "Going out?" I said, yes, I went out. He said, well, what happened? I said, I quit. He said, why did you quit? I said, well, I was just getting knocked down all the time. And he said, uh, do you know anything about football? I said, no, sir. He said, that was your problem. He said, you come to my, he said, every day in eighth period. He said, what do you have eighth period? I said, study hall. About half my classes were study hall. Anyway, I, I was not a leading, well, another story. Anyway, I had to go to his his office there in the junior high every afternoon at, at uh, eighth period, And uh, he gave me a couple of football books to read. And then I had to do book reports on them. And then he gave me tests and quizzes about what were in those football strategy books. And I literally learned every position, how to line up. You know, I learned the intricacies of football and started to understand it. Then, then he promoted me to go back out again and uh, for, the, for the sport. And I did. And what a world of difference. Let me tell you something. I, I talked about it in the book. Uh, what a difference that guy made in my life because I would not have, well, not of my own accord would I have turned again to football. I would have uh, probably, if someone recruited me, it would be a little different, but I still had no working knowledge. But the knowledge he gave me, or or instigated me in in learning uh, coached me in learning was what a wealth, what a great thing. See if you don't happen when you go out for peewee or you go out for junior high, whatever it is, if you don't have a coach that really teaches you the basics so that you understand what's going on and you're just participating, running around, hitting people. That's, you know, that's not football at all. When you understand there's a sequence, there's timing, you know the intricacies, how it works, the running game, the power running game, the distance running game, the outside running game, the downfield, the passing game. When you understand all those things and who lines up to protect you in what circumstance, when you've got a working knowledge of that, the game changes. And that's what the great thing about Pee Wee and some of the young. Know, if you have coaches that really teach the basics how to line up, how to get in a stance, you know, the very basic, basic things, how to put your shoes on correctly, how to put your thigh pads on correctly. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you just, you just assume that kids will know, but they, they don't. And when they, when you're going with a group of them, those kind of basics early on um, led to, um, well, they, they make you feel confident is what it does. When you walk on the field, you feel confidence. When you walk on a football field and you're confident, that you know what's going on and what, you, what you, you're about to face and what to expect. It, it's a whole different situation. I assume it's the same in basketball. I assume it's the same in baseball. I, I don't know. I presume it is.
1: Well, well, that education that you got because you got in trouble certainly uh, led you a long way. You had a great year, great uh, high school career at, at Stowe High School there. You start as a linebacker or defensive end, right, and then you switch to tailback. Uh, so at what point you know, did you have that success – and started to get some recruitment from the the college scouts?
0: Oh, I think the college scouts, uh, I was a big farm kid and light contact at that time. You know, I was 15 years old. When I was 15 years old, I weighed, uh, I think I weighed 204. I was uh, 15. So I was a big kid and was reasonable. I was not fast. I never was fast, but I was quick and quick is what quick's a big thing in football, uh, much more than fast, but, Back then, particularly. So you know, I went out and uh, played at defensive tackle and defensive end, and played a little linebacker, and was doing quite well. Then my sophomore year in high school, we had a coach named Fortner that came down from uh, the Cleveland area, a Randolph area, and uh, coached our team. And he was a uh, a little bit reminiscent of. Uh, Ben Schwartz Don Shula, he was a basics guy, line up, understand what's happening, strategy man. And uh, he was playing me at uh, defensive end and linebacker, but I was aspiring to try to get in to carry the ball. I wanted to carry the ball. I liked the feeling of carrying the ball in the lower grades and when I had an opportunity to do it. And uh, he had me on the uh, return kickoff team, the short, uh, short kickoff return. <laughs> And uh, we played a team my sophomore year right at the end of the season. And uh, it was down to the wire on the thing. And they kicked off. I got the ball. It bounced into my hands. Then I ran and knocked two or three people down. And he saw that. And uh, so the next year, he lined me up at uh, at, uh fullback, And that's how it happened. Because all
1: the- all the Special so- teams led to a great career once again. So... Uh, again, you get recruited. Syracuse is your your place that you go to. And you mentioned uh, Coach Ben Schwarzwaller, uh, World War II hero. It had to be a tough guy. What, what was it like playing for him? Because obviously he had great success at Syracuse. The running game and some of the guys that that he coached with, with Jim Brown and Ernie Davis, Jim Nance, you as well. Uh, what was he like as a coach?
0: Direct. Ben was right to the point. You could tell that he had, uh, he had a lot of uh, – responsibility in the second world war. I, I, you know, I heard stories. uh, I can't reiterate them because I don't know if they're true or not, but he, uh, he had quite a colorful uh, history in the war. And uh, when he attacked football, pretty basically, (laughs) you got to remember it was right after the war and he started to coach and got into into the Syracuse area in the late fifties, early sixties. And, uh, as a result of that, uh, was very much into the running game. You know, Jim Brown, Ernie Davis, Floyd Little. Look at uh, the people that uh, the great running backs that he had. He had a he had a theory. He said, you know, when you throw the ball, two things three things can happen, and two of them are bad. So he wanted to run the ball, and he did an offset line, an off balance line, and was really into that and into the intricacies of being a ball control offense, even uh, back then. And as a result of that, after going down to visit Ohio State, having Woody Hayes tell me and the other guys from Ohio that we owed it to our state to go to Ohio State. Um, being a farm boy that shoveled a lot of cow shit, I just didn't figure I owed anybody anything. So I didn't go to Ohio State. I went to, to uh, Syracuse because of the size of the running backs and how much they ran and the, the great possibility. I made a deal with Ben Schwartzholder as a high school student when he recruited me. Yeah, I would go there and play for him and I respected his decision. I'd play at whatever position he put me at. But I wanted him to give me a fair shot as a running back. And He said he would do that and stood up and we shook hands. And that was the deal. And when I uh, got there my freshman year, back then the freshman couldn't play with the varsity. had to play uh, other freshman teams. So during the course of one of those uh, games, he saw the films of me running the ball and decided that he would put me in the backfield with Floyd Little. Who was a uh, prime candidate for the Heisman that, that year? And, uh, well, his last two years he played, he was he was in the running for the Heisman each time, and it uh, it was a real thrill. He put me in there kind of to block for Floyd. I understood that and uh, was pleased with it. I was pleased with the fact that it was in the backfield blocking for Floyd was a pleasure. Floyd's a great guy, but he uh, occasionally on third and short I'd get the ball, and when I did, I did my best and it turned out pretty good. So that's how it happened.
1: Yeah. School record, almost 3000 uh, yards. Good in your career, as you said, playing with the, the late Floyd little, but also breaking records of some of those greats, Jim Brown and, and Ernie Davis as well. You know, when you're going through it, do you realize kind of the, the the career that you're having at the time, or is it something that you look back at and now in, you know, in your, your book, you, you mentioned it?
0: It's fun to look back and think about uh, the fellows I went through college with, particularly Floyd Little, Name one Tom Coughlin, Nick Kiss. There's a, there's a whole series of them that, that uh, were uh, Tom Coughlin, Nick Kiss, were in my class, in my year, and uh, lined up with me. And uh, you, you don't realize that you're making lifetime relationships with, with guys when you're playing in college. Until you get out of college, you go on to the pros, whatever you do. But then you start thinking about those guys and you hear from them and you get together in alumni gatherings and things. It's a lot of fun. So the college experience was very good. It was kind of tough my freshman year because I hitchhiked back and forth from Syracuse to Ohio a lot and was uh, traveling, you know, hitchhiking, freezing to death in Buffalo a couple of times or near freezing to death in Buffalo. And, uh, but then I, I went home married my childhood sweetheart, brought her back and had a kind of a Uh, I'd say a tense meeting with, uh, coach Schwartz You know, he didn't, uh, I got in a lot of trouble my freshman and sophomore year. I was not a good, uh, like I say, the same thing from the farm, you know, the social, I just wasn't, uh, I didn't see fraternity or sorry, not to put those down. I think those are great things in their own right. I just didn't fit into that. And I was pretty obtuse to that. And I didn't have a lot of patience and, uh, I got in some trouble in uh, school with other students and uh, I had to go before the dean. I was on triple something or other I was in probation. I don't know what it was, but I, I was this close to getting thrown out of school. If I you know, got any further trouble with any of the students, I was gonna get thrown out of school. When I went home, married my childhood sweetheart, brought her back and uh, we started to live off campus. And I just participated in football and classes and worked a job on the side. And that suited me a lot better. I I started to fit in uh, socially because of the other, just a few other married students were there, but Ben Schwarczolder absolutely did not want me to get married come back with my wife. And uh, when I said, I'm going to do that irregardless, he said, okay. And he said, we'll do what we can, but we can't do much. But he did find me a good job that I could work at. And as a result, um, I started getting along beautifully, uh, because I wasn't in, I wasn't eating at the dorm or living in a dorm or all of that stuff. I wasn't on fraternity row at all or any of that party stuff. And as a result, you know, it, it things went along smoothly. Well, a couple of the other guys, Tom Coughlin, went on and married his child, and brought her back. And and same thing with him. He started to have a much better... <laughs> all of a sudden, Ben Shortthrawler changed his whole, uh, perception or uh, of, of uh, having married guys on the team uh, it seemed like it it lowered all the problems he was having the social misfit thing all went away because we didn't have time uh, to get in any problems so that was an adjustment but then you know I, I, I liked my time at Syracuse it was a uh, very rewarding I think is, is the words I would use uh, it was um uh, a learning experience and a very rewarding experience. Floyd Little, Jim Nance. There was a there was a lot of players that I played with that were uh, went on to pro careers and I knew for years and years.
1: Yeah, forty four is a famous number up there. But your thirty nine is retired at Syracuse as well for your contributions and and again what you did there from sixty five to sixty seven as as a running back. So your career is great there. Then you get drafted, get drafted in the first round, eighth overall by the, the Dolphins. What's going through your mind at that time, you know, getting a chance to to go to the next level, go to uh, pro football. What's What's going through your mind when you hear that you get drafted by the Dolphins?
0: Well, first off, I didn't know that Miami had a football team. <laughs> it was an expansion franchise, probably a, well, was two years old. And, uh, I did not, uh, I was kind of hoping, you know, Green Bay, Cleveland, you know, somewhere where there was a big back already, or that historically it had a big running back uh, that I would be included in that kind of situation. Miami uh, was uh, pretty much the bottom of the league, and we stayed there in 60, my rookie year, 68, 69. We continued to be at the bottom of the barrel. And then in 70, uh, Don Shula, um, after going through his experience with Super Bowl, with Joe Namath I ended up uh, on the market. And I guess that's when he locked into Miami. And that's when I met him and uh, thought that I'd probably be traded. And I went in his office and he said, uh, you know, you come in my office and shut the door. You can say anything you want. He said in front of the team, you address me as coach. And, you know, he had very disciplined, disciplined uh, rules on how to how to interact. And uh, I thought, I'm probably not going to fit in here. So I was thinking maybe he'll trade me to Cleveland or trade me to the brand. I was looking at several different places. So I went in to see him and uh, he had a lot of rules and did a lot of barking at practice. And I didn't think that I was going to fit in with him at all. And I went in to see him and he said, what do you think? I said, I don't like you. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, uh, well, he said, you know, I'm glad you said that because he said, I I don't really like you either. (laughs) I said, well, if you're going to trade me, can I have any kind of say so? He said, I already tried to trade you. He said, I can't get anything for you. (laughs) He said, well, he didn't say that. He said, I could, I can't get enough for you. Whatever his definition of enough. I never, I quizzed him later. He always laughed about it. He never did tell me the real story, but he he did kid around about that. But, But, you know, it was funny because he, when he said, you can say anything in here, I said, good. I don't like you. <laughs> and he came right back with the same, bounced it right back. That's how we started. But that's, that did, you know, that, what that, the importance of that is, is it's total honesty. I mean, you don't have, uh, you know, you know, trying to say, well, I think I can fit in here. I can fit in there. I didn't think I fit in anywhere in his plans. He's very much a, a passing, you know, he was a defensive back when he played. He's very into the past. Johnny Unitas, all you got to say, you know, look at historically what happened there at Baltimore. And I thought, well, he's never going to be interested in a power running game or, you know, a ground game. But he hired a coach named Monty Clark from Cleveland, who was a great offensive tackle for Jimmy Brown at at the Browns and was uh, one of the captains of the uh, offensive line or offensive unit. And he was a very smart guy. And he came down, and we had uh, at the time, I think Larry Little was there, and then he, then Monty Clark instigated Bob Kuchenberg coming to us, and Jim Langer, who was a Hall of Famer later. Um, there was uh, probably five offensive linemen that Monty Clark instigated being brought into the uh, the Miami picture that that really turned into being a great offensive line. When I say great, great in the sense of communication. They weren't all all pros, you know, two or three of them were, which is great, but they were all intelligent men that could communicate with each other. And the power running game, believe it or not, looks like it's all brute force. It's not. It's co- very coordinated. It's very timing. It's very dependent on timing and knowing what each other are going to do because you're talking about milliseconds here. You're talking about... Uh, quarter, half, second makes all the difference. You can't collide with your offensive lineman when they're trying to X block or they're trying to trap. You've got to understand their calls at the line of scrimmage. They're calling and changing how they're going to block the play that was called in the huddle. They're going to change how they're going to block it by calls red, blue, green, orange, whatever it is. But you've got to hear that and you've got to know what that means because there's going to be a tiny little gap in between a whole lot of brawn. And if you hit that gap, your chances are you're going to blow through it because it's it's, the space in between all that momentum. And uh, you'll be one-on-one with a defensive back. And, of course, a 240-pound fullback can really shine when when you're (laughs) running into 180-pound safety. But if you hit into your linemen or hit them in the back or injure them or collide with them, it destroys that. So there's a lot of understanding, a lot of procedure and practice and communication that goes into that. And to have someone like Monty Clark as an assistant coach to lay that up was just spectacular. And he did, it, he did and it worked, and then we did. And it, uh, ball control offense is what we were about. And uh, third and two, you better look out because we had all different kinds of ways to do it. And with a simple red call or blue call, everything would change, but we'd know. And uh, our productivity rate on third and short, second short, third and short, third short predominantly was, my gosh, it was up in the 80 and 90 percentile. When you have that, you cause that defense to have to pull in to try to stop that. The minute they pull in, when you've got wideouts named Briscoe or Warfield, You know, they're one-on-one out there if those other guys pull in, if that safety steps up, if the sandbacker cheats in. You know, all that uh, uh, reflects on the passing game and the defense. They get one-on-one. How do you like to be out there and hear your your safety call and he can't help you? You're the defensive halfback and you're looking over at Paul Warfield who, you know, <laughs> smokes people on a regular basis. <laughs> and you know, you got him one-on-one and you're thinking, boy, I hope they'd give it to that fullback because I'm never going to be able to stay with Warfield, you know? And that's the kind of feeling I'm sure fellas defensive uh, halfbacks had out there when, that, when those situations happened. And we would be consistent. We would uh, third and short, we would get the two yards. Or we would get the yard and a half, or we'd get the three yard. And then when the defense finally started drawing in to stop it, then we'd fake it and, and go to one-on-one on Warfield. And that was, uh, when you have that kind of tit-for-tat situation, um, boy, it just, it, uh, it puts the defense in a real helter-skelter situation on what to do. And uh, when you have ball control offense like that, where you can just walk down the field with it and burn the clock. Uh, today, there's not much ball control. It's all line up. If you're down 20, Three to nothing, or twenty-one to nothing at halftime, it used to be well. You figure the game's pretty much over because there's just ball control after that. Well, today you'd be down twenty-eight to nothing and make a comeback and win the second half because it's all up and down the field. So fast. That's that's not good or bad. It's just different.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, if you're a fan, you got to think about it. Like when you when you sit in the stands, you know a lot about football. You've been sports mining, but there's a lot of folks that don't. And when they sit in the stands and they're looking, they see a guy throw a ball and a guy run down the field and catch it, they can appreciate that because it's self-explanatory. But when you see a big mass of humanity and it's third and two and there's tremendous collisions and a lot of things happen and they get it, you don't really know what happened. You don't understand that because you were never bore witness to that. You were never involved in that as a kid or in high school. You never, never saw the development of a professional power running game. So it's, it's unappreciative, but from a fan's point of view, when you see that ball in the air, it's much more exciting. So you can't argue with the fact that it's more exciting, more fun to watch today, but there's that old ball control thing. When you were playing, when you were playing for the team and each other and weren't just catering to the fans, it it was a little different. Uh, I don't, I think, uh, a lot of people don't understand and don't understand what they're seeing on a ball control offense. So I'm sympathetic with them, but it is fun when you see the long bomb and you see someone streaking down the field and you know, he's got it. It's a great time.
1: Oh, well, it was a great time for you guys though, as well, as you said, that, that balance that you did have. So th- third and two, you'd probably knew you were going to get the ball a lot of times, Six three, two thirty five, 235 maybe two fifty at, at at times in your playing career. Is that the time that you really relished knowing that you had a chance to not just do something good, but, but dole out some punishment and go through people instead of trying to go around them all the time.
0: Well, when you talk about going through people, you know, there's guys like Butkus and Nitschke and Willie Lanier. You didn't go through them. (laughs) If you, if you were lucky enough to have someone dragging on them, (laughs) uh, causing them some major concerns, so they couldn't fully face off with you, then you might get an edge. See, but, uh if they sprung you through there if there was a quick action blocking situation and you pop through the hole and you're looking at Kraus or Kosalki from Minnesota uh, defensive backs that weighed 180 pounds well that's you know what you just alluded I was 240 250 and I'm rolling with that with that uh, momentum uh, well, of course, you can make it look—you uh, make it look very one-sided when you got a hundred and eighty-pound guy trying to come up and tackle you. He's, he's going to get a lot of punishment, and that—you know—that makes you look like a superior runner. But the fact of the matter is, it's your line that gets you through the Nitschkes and the Lanier's and the different people—Bubba uh, Smith, you know, uh, uh, Page, Alan Page. Uh, Joe Green, you know, you didn't run over Joe Green. You didn't run over Ray Nischke. You uh, you tried to get a good block on them and slide off them if you could and get three yards. That that was what you were after. But if you do that consistently, that's you know, if you have that consistency and you can do that day in, play in, play out all through the game, uh, you're going to control the ball and chances are win. And that's how we went undefeated in '72.
1: Yeah, you, you won a lot of games, 72, obviously the, the perfect season. Let's go back to 71 season, though, because you go to the Super Bowl, you come up short. Did that kind of set the tone and set things up for, for what 1972 would be?
0: Mike, absolutely. I think you read that in the book. It, it talks about the, the – there's no worse feeling in all of professional football than losing the Super Bowl. and Not just losing it, just getting hammered in it, and that's what happened. Dallas just hammered us. And and uh, Bob Lilly, I you know, I didn't think people could pick me up by my head, but Bob Lilly proved that it could happen. You know, <laughs> he's a great player, and uh, they did a great job in that Super Bowl, and it just, uh, boy, it just uh, dropped us right into the depths of despair after being so excited and going doing so well, and then getting to the Super Bowl, and then just getting hammered in it. And Coach Shuly used that. He had been through that, see, back when they lost with Baltimore, with would name it. And uh, I'll never forget after the game, he said, I want every one of you to remember how you feel right now. And when we first got together the next next, uh, summer, next early fall, to start practicing for the next season for 72, he brought up that game. The first films we watched were the films of the Super Bowl. And uh, he said, I want you to remember how you feel after you know after losing that because we're going to draw on that. He said, this year, our objective is to go one game at a time and treat every game as though it's the Super Bowl. So we get consistently approaching the game like it's the Super Bowl each week. Jim Kick looked over at me in that meeting when Coach Shula said that and, and winked and said, buckle up. I'll never forget he was exactly right. Uh, Shula would not let us forget that. He brought it up week to week. And, you know, he was – what he was after was perfection. He never talked about winning every game. He talked about approaching every game like it was the Super Bowl. And then, lo and behold, because of that, I don't think it was his – the thrust of what he was talking about was – to get back to the Super Bowl and win it. But he wasn't thinking that we were going to go and win every game. You know, who does that? No one's done that in the back then, the first 50 years of the NFL, no one had done it. And now it's been 50 years since, and we're still the only team that's done it. But it was because of the fact that we suffered that loss and we started out so serious each week. And it wasn't me or – Jake Scott or Nick Bonacani, the stars of the defense, or other stars on the offense, Warfield or Greasy. It was the guys that, <laughs> even the special teams guys, I talk about it in the book. We had a rookie named Charlie Babb. He made the difference in the Cleveland game. He blocked a punt, picked it up, and scored. <clears throat> Excuse me. Without his effort, we lose to Cleveland, and we don't have an undefeated season. So here's a guy that's playing second team, just getting in on special teams makes the difference in the game that's teamwork that's what it's that's what it's all about to be that serious and and so into the game each week uh into the inner workings the intricacies if you will every week without getting uh, the worst thing you could do in a practice shula would go absolutely bonkers if he thought you were like going through the motions you know like half half half-hearted Oh, he, he just couldn't stand that. It made him tremble. He he just would shake. He he wanted us to be out there for the time we were out there, and he had everything divided into these little timed increments during practice. We would do this, then we would do this, then the defense comes down and we do this for them, but then they do this for us. Boom, 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 boom. You run some gassers, you run a lap or two, and you go in. And practices, uh, you know, we practice three, four times a day sometimes. <laughs> back then but he would uh that's when he first got there we did that but he even in double sessions he would make it quick and to the point but he wanted everybody's attention he wanted that concentration he wanted you to think about it if you were going through the motions on a practice field under coach shula you and he he caught you at that two or three times you generally got traded
1: yeah, he, as you said, he was tough. You learned that from Ben Walter, your high school coach before that as well. So again, seventeen and zero undefeated season. Uh, I know you guys, those of you that are left, still kind of get together, celebrate when that last undefeated team loses in, in the current NFL season. Is that something you guys do and something you you relish because it was so hard, obviously, to in, in NFL to get to the Super Bowl to win it, but then to go seventeen and zero is just amazing,
0: Mike. It's an ongoing live participation that no one else has. When you retire from the NFL and you walk away, you get old and decrepit and you fall apart. But you think about how you were and you think about that. But when you're still involved, see, because of that undefeated season, we're still involved. We, we still, we're still a team on the field. A ghost team but we're still there and the team that's trying to go undefeated it looks like they may go undefeated they're competing with the people that they're competing with on the field but they're also competing with us from 72 some of us are ghosts some of us are soon to be but that's that's we're back we're back in action we're back uh, competing Um uh, Obviously, not on the field, but in our brains, we're competing. We're thinking about it. And you know, you get very involved in the games. I'll never forget when uh, Tyree caught that ball for the Giants on the side of his head <laughs> and won that game. I jumped out of my chair and about took my head off in the fan in the uh, rec room or the garage. <laughs> we're watching the game. Cause we were, I was very much in that game, yeah. you know, sure. 60 some years old, but I was still in that game. And, uh, you feel like you're on the field. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you're that excited about it and that into it. A lot of the guys had the champagne toast and stuff. They did that for the news. It's more like a Miller light <laughs> or Budweiser toast, but, it, uh, uh, we call each other and come, you know, see, think about it. Cause if you, you see, it's already the fourth game. I think Miami's still undefeated. I think yeah. one another, and it, you start to watch, you start to sit up and say, well, who's that? And why, you know, then you start looking into the team. and You start to think, well, here's who will beat them. You know, you start and you start that all over again. It's like, uh, it's like playing again a little bit in a secondary position each year.
1: I mean, it's it, it's a beautiful way to think about it. Like you said, you, you're always involved, even though you guys haven't played for a long time now. You're always involved with with what's going on, and certainly it keeps you guys, uh, you know, glued to the TV sets, as you said, to to see what's going to happen. It's interesting, as you said, that the Dolphins are one of those early on here. A lot of football to go uh, again. So the the perfect season, and then you guys follow that up going back to the Super Bowl as well. And you had a great Super Bowl in, in that victory. You were the MVP in uh, in Super Bowl eight. Was it hard? I mean, it's the third Super Bowl in a row, the second victory. Was it harder the second time through? And were you guys continuing to chase perfection once again?
0: Michael be honest with you. It was game to game in 72. There were cliffhangers uh, <clears throat> probably more than 50% of the time. We were probably around 70% of the time we were. You know, nip and tuck to pull the game out. There weren't weren't many gimmicks in '73. I think the team was stronger and more um, more confident, even though we lost two games. But I think that '73 team was actually uh, more dominant. More, uh, yeah, the offense had better ball control. The defense was even smarter, made fewer mistakes. Uh, You know. It's uh, unfortunate that we dropped two games. We I think we lost to uh, let's see, oh, I'm going back. That's, uh I can't remember. I think it was Oakland, the Oakland Raiders. We lost to. Yeah, that blo- broke the streak. It was out in Oakland, and uh, that was the first game we lost after going undefeated the year before. We we're at Oakland. A great you know a great story about that is uh, you talk about the integrity of Shula as a head coach. You know living living what he preached. We all thought, well, he demands this and he demands that. Um, but he, he wanted, uh, he wanted to, to win. And the only way he wanted to win was by the book. In other words, you know, cheat and uh, wouldn't consider it. Well, say that everyone hears people say that and you think, yeah, okay, well put a little extra in a ball or let a little out or, you know, all the things that can happen. Um, uh, you know, definition of cheating. Well, when we went out to play Oakland, we hadn't gone through the undefeated season and we're part of the way through the 73 season. And we go out to play the Oakland Raiders in their, in their facility. And uh, because there's work going on in the stadium, we'd have to utilize the same locker room the day before the game. So they practiced that morning. We got there, that we flew in, got there that afternoon and came straight to the stadium and practiced in, in the same locker room that they had used because the other one was shut down for construction. And I go in and I find Art Tom's locker. Art Tom's a defensive tackle that played with me at Syracuse, great big fella. And I went and used his locker and was gonna leave him a note about how much, well, I was gonna goof around with him. Anyway, I'm looking for something to ride on. And I reached down into the bottom of his locker, you know, that I'm gonna utilize. And uh, there's the game plan. There's the Oakland Raiders' defensive game plan, which tells, tells them what to do in down and distance on our consistencies on offense. In other words, this is what they're going to do to counteract this that we're going to do. <clears throat> I don't know if you can realize the importance of having that, but if you know what the defense is going to be according in accordance with your alignment prior to the time that you line up, of course, you line up looking like you're going to commit to that play that they're expecting. And then you run a complete system <laughs> Moodle changeup. And of course, you end up scoring with that because you'll go to the weak side because they're anticipating a dive in the four hole, and you run a, a, a corner <laughs> with the flanker. So that's a, you know, that's how important that was. So I see it, I realize what it is. And Monty Clark comes walking up, our offensive line coach, and says, What's that? I said, I don't know. And I, and I never saw it. I hand it to him and I wink at him. I just hand it to him. Now, if he's got that up in the, you know, he's up there being the spotter and he's saying, Okay, it's third and three. They're going to expect this. <laughs> we're going to line up that way, but this is what we're going to do. <laughs> you know, I knew, he knew, I knew, we both knew, you know. So he just walks off. We lose that game. It's not a factor. I it's, just, it's like it never happened. So I, I, you know, after the game, I'm in there and I'm I'm pissed. We lost, you know. And Monty was walking by, I said Monty. He said what? I said what? What? What'd you do with the game? You know, why didn't you you like? Uh, he said I took it over to Coach Shula. He said tear it up, throw it away. Don't look at it. <laughs> now it's one thing to preach that. It's one thing to say, you know, we don't cheat. But when something falls in your lap that you didn't conspire, that you didn't try to alter situations to gain, I didn't steal it. I found it. <laughs> now, <laughs> in my book, I thought that's you know that's uh, that's a little different than than uh, changing the pressure in the ball or whatever. So I was uh, I was pissed. But that that demonstrates how Shula lived what he preached. Yeah. Up until that point, there was no proof in the pudding. I I believed he did. I thought he did. But, you know, all of us, you know, there's a certain... When I find somebody else's game report in the lot, you know, it's pretty hard to turn that down. I'm like, you know, look at that and think, you know. (laughs) If he's dumb enough to leave that there, (laughs) you know, we're going to utilize. But that's how you look at it, you know, different. But Shula, you know... He was on, when he was a young man, he thought about going into the priesthood. So he took things very serious. His dedication to detail, his uh, attention to the finites. You know, before he played in Super Bowl Seven, he flew out to L.A. Stadium a week before, you know, the Sunday off before, they used to have an open date before they put the Pro Bowl there and all that. He flew out, sat in that stadium, and mapped where the sun was every half hour. Think about that.
1: Yeah. You know,
0: detail oriented. And it, man, that concentrated, that devoted to winning, but still that ethical that he, you know, when he saw that game, he knew what that was. Wouldn't touch it. Just told him, throw it away. Don't even look at it. You know, we can't, that's not, if we can't win, then we shouldn't. And we didn't. That's the kick in the butt. We didn't. That's the first game we lost in 17 or 18 straight games, you know. And there you are. Now, you know, I, probably take it in the chin a little bit, but if somebody leaves the game report, I'm going to look at it, you know, but if, if Shula picked it up, you know, he lives, he lives tighter. He goes by a tighter rope than I do. There it is.
1: Yeah. It says a lot about him and his integrity. As you said, you lost the Oakland and you lost the Baltimore coats, Colts there in the, in 1973 oh, on good. your way to that uh, second consecutive Super Bowl. Uh, eventually your time with Miami and ended, you went to the, the world football league. You were drafted by the Memphis Southmen. And you, you played there a little bit. What was that experience life and that transition going from the NFL to the, the World Football League?
0: Well, a guy named John Bassett owned a team in the World Football League, and he was from Toronto, Canada. And We went up and uh, interviewed with him in Toronto, I think back in uh, 74, 75, whenever it was, and ended up striking a deal. And it was, uh, you know, my goodness, a multiple of five of my, my – uh, salary so it was it was a great deal a lot of money and we were going to uh play in Canada in Toronto and uh, <laughs> I grew up in Ohio and as a kid we used to be able to go once a year dad would take us uh for a week and we would go to somewhere in Ontario in northern Ontario and we would fish catch bluegill and bass different things and just uh just, I mean, I just loved it. I thought that was just a cat's ass. I really liked going up to Canada to fish. And of course, I had played college football, got to Canada a little bit, but then came back and always aspired to go to Alaska. I wanted to get up on further north and further west in Canada, just dreamt about it, but got so involved in football and uh, couldn't do it. And then Bam, it falls in my life. We go to the World Football League. We go to see John Bassett, Toronto. We're going to have homes in Toronto uh, part of the year and uh, be up there and be able to fish, you know, and go up early and stay late, all those things. And it was just, man, it was just perfect. So we signed a personal services contract to uh, John Bassett, the three of us, myself, Jim Kick, and Paul Warfield. At probably between five and 10 times what we were making in the NFL at the time. And also we're going to get the benefit of Canada. Well, then Canada decided to vote down the, uh, uh, world football league because they wanted to protect the uh, CFL. So Brown Bassett had to transplant the offense and he moved or transplant the team and he had to do it very quickly. And he went down and moved it to Memphis, which was some pretty good fishing, but just wasn't what I had had in mind for Canada in, uh, It turned out Memphis was a great place and, you know, very receptive and it it went well, but I, and I got to meet Elvis Presley, Jim kick and Elvis Presley had a lot in common. They like to shoot eight ball and listen to music and play so you can talk football. And I like to hang out with them and uh, have a beer and watch them shoot (laughs) pool. So that it was a pretty unique situation that happened and kind of fun at the same time. World football league, of course, collapsed. When it did, we were in personal service contracts, so the NFL had to buy out the contract from from uh, John Bassett, and that's what happened. I went to the Giants, and I think uh, the other fellows came back. I think Warfield came back to Cleveland for a while. and I think Kick went to Washington. There were was some, and then out to Denver, I think. Uh, in uh, so it was kind of at the end of our careers, all of our careers, but at the same time, what a great thing to jump and then never came to fruition in Toronto. I, I still fantasize about that. and I'm, I know I just feel that I got to know a lot of people in Toronto, and I've been much more prone to have a split citizenship thing and go back and forth. Because, uh, you know, with a country like Canada, and the United, or countries like Canada and the United States, you couldn't be, you know, we're a mirrored image of each other. And as a result, it's a very relaxed border, and we can go back and forth and be a great place to do that. But it didn't happen.
1: Yeah, no Canada and fishing and the, the wildlife, but instead you're drinking beers with Elvis Presley in Memphis. That's that's a pretty good trade, though, right? Well,
0: hey, I I'll never say anything bad about Memphis in the area. We um, it was a lot of fun being there, and it was it was a real kick, a real hoot to get to meet Elvis, get to know him uh, on a kind of a personal basis. Yeah. The, I just had a whole different impression. You know, I'm not into music like Jim Kick, but Kick and Elvis had a lot in common. They, they like talking football. They like to pool. They both like music. They could discuss any one of those three things intimately and, and, and in depth. And then uh, they'd come to me on some of the football things, or if it had to do with uh, critters or anything, they would come to me. But seldom. <laughs> but they uh, really enjoyed each other's company, and that was. Uh, that was a unique thing i i got a kick out of it because elvis uh you know when he's on stage he's elvis But when he's shooting pool in, in his basement with jim kick and they're arguing about a how to a <laughs> combination shot or whatever or they're talking football yeah they're just people and it uh i got a real hoot out of the fact that uh, you know I grew up with one impression of elvis when I was a kid you know I was 10 years old when he was 1956 when he he was started uh, singing Hound Dog and came to fruition uh, uh, of his career. Uh, to see all that and see the career, but not know the man. And then to get to meet the man and realize he's uh, he's a very down to earth, very, very intelligent, very athletically minded guy. He, he really liked football. I'd love to discuss it.
1: Yeah, he was a big football fan. And so, certainly, as you said, discussed that a lot. Uh, for you, your career kind of came full circle, 1979, back with the Dolphins. You were the comeback player of the year that year uh, in 1979. What was it like going back to to Miami after, you know, the World Football League, a couple of years with the Giants as well?
0: Um, it hadn't changed much. Shealy <laughs> was still as in, intense as ever, and uh, – very demanding. The uh, a lot of players had changed. Probably one third to nearly half the team changed. But I went back. I still had Coochum, but there were still some offensive linemen there that had been there before, and um, we put together a pretty good season. We lost to Oakland, and uh, I think Oakland. I don't know if Oakland went all the way that year or not. It seems to me they did. But,
1: uh, so, so you know, eventually you retire after that 1979 season with the Dolphins as, as well. As you said, I, I saw you say. You didn't retire. You you got retired by the NFL. It seems like that's kind of a recurring, of people, reti- right?
0: Yeah, people always say I retired. You know, retired that year. I said, no, no, I got fired that year. <laughs> she you know, I went back with the idea of blocking for Delvin Williams. Delvin Williams had some problems and uh, kind of dropped out in about the mid-season, and as a as a result, I became the the primary ball carrier. And it, uh, as old as I was, you know. You start talking about nine, 10 years in the in the league, carrying the ball 30, 40 times a game. Uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't tough enough to do that. Anyway, I took a real beating that year, that last year I played, carrying the ball that much. And as a result, I, you know, I'd come back just to be a third and short kind of person and uh, not be so leading the offense. So I told him, if you want me to come back again, if Delvin Williams isn't coming back and I'm going to be the primary ball carrier, I want a salary that's uh, in accordance with what I used to get paid at the end of my career uh, before I left the last time. You know, I went to uh, uh, quite a bit more money and they said no. And I said, well, good, then I'm, I'm out. And uh, Shula, then uh, we talked back and forth a couple of times, but then he placed me on waivers. He, he, he let me go. And it was time. I didn't really want to go back at, you know, you get up in your high thirties uh, or, or your early thirties and you're still carrying the ball 40 times a game. Um, it's, it's, you, you know, you can't rebound from that, you know, uh, at that age, uh, things slow down your, your ability to bounce back from that kind of punishment just, uh, changes from your 20s to your 30s drastically and uh so i i went on my way
1: yeah your body took a toll took a beating 10 broken noses right you had that interesting little bar on your 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 face mask there for your your helmet mm-hmm. um but for you it seemed like a pretty easy transition you did a lot of fishing and hunting shows where did that come from kind of the, the broadcast side of you were you doing any of that uh, during your career
0: When my career ended, uh, my marriage ended as well uh, soon after. And as uh, I had decided to set out for Alaska, I was doing speaking engagements and uh, appearances and uh, doing some TV, uh, sports TV, you know, outdoor TV, fishing and hunting, appearing on other people's shows and things. But I wanted to go to Alaska and have my own show. And that's when I uh, met and started to uh, talk with Audrey, and we talked about it. I said, "I'm not really interested in getting married and settled down. I want to go to Alaska, and if you want to go, here's the deal." And she listened intently, and then looked at me and said, "Yes, that's what I'll, that's what we'll do." So she started putting together the tactical approach on how to. Get, a, get our own show and broadcast from Alaska and, uh, and, and film in Alaska and, and do the shows in Alaska and uh, how to bounce around. And that changed drastically. We did it for like 15 or 16 years, but it changed drastically from the way we started out to the way we ended up because by the time we ended up, we, were, we could broadcast back to our editors who were at my farm in Ohio and uh, <clears throat> actually over the satellite live you know because they opened up the communications Uh, the military satellites opened up over Alaska and let us utilize their let everyone utilize their uh, technology so we could literally have a a live phone hookup from our remote location in different places in Alaska to the edit bay in Ohio for their shows and we did the uh, north to Alaska show for I don't know 10 years that way it yeah, was a lot of fun to go to a lot of remote places and do a lot of fishing and bear viewing and uh, whale watching and all kinds of things. And uh, if we do another book, if I do a, another book, I think I'll do that about that experience because that over the 17 or 18 years that we were up there and did that, I, uh, my gosh, some of the places and some of the great folks, uh, uh, some of our, uh, First Americans up there in, in, the, in the very North country. What great remote villages and what a great lifestyle they have. Just a unique situation and, and very different, but very humane, very um, enjoyable. I guess there's a word.
1: Hey, mention Audrey, Audrey Bradshaw, who you work with there. As you said your longtime partner and help you with your, your new memoir, Head On. Uh, again, That we're talking about here a lot of the stories from that book out October 4th. Last week, we talked with Dwight Freeney, a future Pro Football Hall of Famer. You were inducted in 1987. What is that moment like when you're on the dais and and you're talking, you've got the yellow jacket on, you see your bust for the first time. What's it like when you're inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio? So an Ohio guy as well, maybe it meant a little bit more to you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it did, because I...
1: Uh, When they
0: announced that the Hall of Fame was going to be built in Canton, Ohio, I was uh, probably a sophomore, freshman, sophomore in in high school. And I decided to go down to the grand opening and, you know, they were having a big press event and uh, Pete Rozelle and a plethora of uh, famous athletes, uh, Bronco Nugursky included, uh, were all going to be down there. And I'd read several books on Bronco Nugursky. And so I went down and tried to get in. And of course you had to have a, a button and they were <laughs> a pass and I didn't. And B uh, and another guy, I think Ron Mohofer was his name. He grew up with me in Stowe. His father owned a Chevy uh, dealership. So he had a car and we, we got down there to, to experience the situation and see it. But we had to kind of sneak in and we got in and I got right up at the end of the <clears throat> stage and I was, I was looking up at the stage and Bronco Nagurski was standing about six or eight feet from me. And I was looking at him thinking about the book I had read about him and everything. And he looked down and kind of smiled at me. And I, I smiled back at him <clears throat> and then he kind of nodded. And I looked to where he was, he was kind of pointing, telling me or conveying to me. <clears throat> and when I looked, the usher grabbed me, <laughs> and drug me out. So the first two times that I uh, tried to get into the Hall of Fame, I was thrown out. And then uh, the third time, I didn't try to get in, and it turns out I got in.
1: <laughs> there you go, again, in, in, in 1987. And once again, all this is in the book, Head On, a memoir. And I know you're, you're on social media as well. I know you have your own website, but uh, how can people follow you? How can they obviously uh, get this book pre-order and then uh, when it comes out on October 4th?
0: Well, I think as you, as you alluded to, it, uh, it's, it's on there on my site. So just come on and, and uh, Audrey handles all that for me and she'll make sure that uh, they get their book. It's a fun story. We had a great time. Uh, I had a great time living it. <clears throat> There's a lot of humor in it because uh, I, got, I got into some funny situations that I could only, you know, well, we've talked about some of them, but just the confrontation with Shula, you know, the different things that happened over the years sitting and watching Elvis Presley talk football, shooting eight balls, kind of unique in, in his basement. He had a great looking bartender, it was, <laughs> she was beautiful, which it was entertaining. But I, um, I you know, I, I, the only thing that we didn't extrapolate, we didn't expand on was really the Alaska thing. And that, that, that probably deserving of its own book. If we do another book, I think that's what we'll do, is, is one about that, that total experience because so many people contact me about where to go and, you know, what, what they want to fish for and what they want. And there's so many different selections. There's so many, it's still so out back up there and so diverse and so many, uh, unique places to go and see, um, that I I, I think I will probably do another book about it here in another year. So.
1: All right. Well, we'll look forward to that. Uh, Lastly, uh, again, the first meeting with Don Shula, you told him you didn't like him. He didn't like you. How, how did that relationship end? Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm, I'm sure it turned around just a bit.
0: In his final years, <clears throat> I got to uh, be in his company several times and we had uh, just ongoing uh, you know, from the time I walked in till the time I left we were just back and forth battering. And it was a lot of fun. Now that wasn't just he and I, that was with a lot of the other players from the 72 team and other alumni from different years that would get together and have a cookout or whatever Don wanted to do. And, uh, it was great times. He, uh, he left us very quickly and very unexpectedly, much like Jim kick, just, he was here and then gone. And, uh, I just uh, wished I'd have had more time to talk to him. When I went through the book and wrote the book. It occurred to me that I should have sat down and talked with him about some of these things more in depth because I never really never really pushed him to get exactly what it what uh, what transpired, you know, I took him at his word at the time, but uh, I would have liked to you know thirty years come back and and approach the subject again, his intensity, you know, I just uh, <clears throat> he had a great sense of humor, but in order to be as intense as he was, he had to cover it up a lot, and that made me wonder if he's as real as what he seemed to be. And and then when I handed the uh, scouting report, and he tore it up, that's proof of the pudding. At least he's for what it, he is. What he says in that respect, yeah. you know. So you know his intensity was just as uh, little things. Uh, you know, I used to just get upset because of his weight. You know, he always had these weights that were down. Earl Morrill, for my gosh, Well, he had the kicker, Garou Premium. You know, he's in the sauna with me. I'm sitting there looking at him. What the hell's a kicker doing in here, trying to get in shape? He's he just, he, he, the kicker's too fat, you know? Well, <laughs> that's crazy, you know? But it, there it was. And then later it dawned on me, but I never had a chance to ask him. It dawned on me that maybe he put those weights down there so that we would spend more time with each other In the sauna and getting ready to weigh in and complaining about him. Maybe that was part of his plan to create great teamwork because without great teamwork and respect for each other and wanting to win for each other, you can't go undefeated. It doesn't just happen. There's got to be more effort put in. And you think by being more tight friend wise, uh, closer to each other, as friends, besides just teammates, made a difference, and I think uh, that might be the winning edge that he was talking about. I never had a chance to say, "Did you do that for that reason, or were you this nuts about making weights uh, r- ridiculous in order to force guys to work out that much?" You know, he—I think might be a little bit of both, but you know, I, I don't know, and I never got to, i never asked him because I never thought about it until he was gone. And that's a terrible thing. That'd be my only advice to anyone that's uh, reaching retirement age or so on is uh, spend more time with people that you're really close to and and ask them the things that you puzzle about sometimes. Because uh, all of a sudden they're gone and it's very, the final curtains is pulled and that's that's it. You never have a chance to go back, recollect.
1: Well, Larry, I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to recollect here and, and share some great stories. Uh, I, I love them all. Uh, again, you're a Hall of Famer uh, on a perfect team. And uh, I love the fact, like you said, you're still involved with every season because everyone's competing against the rest of the field, but they're competing against you guys. Uh, the best to ever do a perfect season back in, the, in 1972. Thanks so much for your time and Wish you nothing but the best again with the, the book head on a memoir comes out October 4th, uh, go wherever you get your books and, and make sure you get that because we just touched on some of the stories. I know you said, you know, there's more stories in there that, that we didn't get to, but uh, certainly a great read uh, about the, the great Larry Zonka and, uh, and your career. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you, Mike. See you later.
1: Well, once again, a great guest, Pro Football Hall of Famer Larry Zonka in episode number 43. Our thanks to Larry and for Audrey Bradshaw for helping set up that interview. Be sure to check out his book, Head On, a memoir, as he's got more great stories in there and expands on some of the stuff that we touched on here today. Our thanks, as always, to you for listening, for watching. Be sure to subscribe as we'll have more great guests coming up in the future. Thanks for joining us here once again in the front row with Mike DeCaro. Have a great day everybody.